0: I don't know if you know this, but in um, one of the plot lines for the new Star Wars film is um, that apparently Truebucker is going to have a website that reveals all the secrets of the Empire. And it's called Wookiee Leaks. And, sorry, that was terrible. No one. People thought I was serious then. That was bad. You always know you're, in the, you're saying the joke for the wrong crowd when everyone thinks a funny thing it's a serious thing. Um, It's actually 52 days until Star Wars starts and I um, actually, Walker's probably not here because he's at a big conference right now for computer games, he's probably the most excited in our church about that, Um, but but I can remember sitting in the playground in grade two um, and we were talking about the fact that I wonder if George Lucas will actually do another seventh film and so all these years later it's happened but it's not George Lucas which is probably a good thing. Um, it's quite amazing the power of a movie franchise and, and what it has over over us. And it's amazing, like, why men in their 30s and 40s will weep at a, a movie like this. Scott Strange. But, um, you know, I think part of it is that we love the spaceships and we love, you know, the, the lightsabers and we love, you know, the, the narrative. Um, but there's also something, I think, about it that's quite deeply profound that we love, and that is that... Inside of, inside of us we just get excited about this idea of a person who will come and save the universe. A person who could um, defeat Darth Vader. A person who could really bring um, you know, good to the universe. And that's kind of the theme that Star Wars explores, isn't it? Um, you might have had a similar reaction when you read about Aslan and the Narnia books. You know, um, there's a great quote, quote from the Nani books. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. You might have wept at that, potentially. Or The Hobbit, when he goes to take the ring uh, uh, to the fires of Mount Doom. Um, I, I, I think um, there's, there's something in all these stories, and maybe if you're not a fantasy literature or movies, you get it from politics. So when you're watching, um, you know, the, the elections and you... I remember when, uh, in 2008, I think eight or nine—I think eight, 2008 when um, the American election happened and Barack Obama won, and everyone thought he was going to be the great saviour of America, and a million people gathered, you know. And for some of us, that that brings you this excitement in your gut—the um, the archetype of the hero, the one who rescues, who rises above mere mortals who restores hope, makes everything better. Hope was Barack Obama's whole campaign, wasn't it? Um, There's a yearning inside of us uh, that makes us think beyond the Jedi or the superhero, or for for Leo, it's Batman, um, who thinks beyond the president or the prime minister of Australia, um, a universal longing in our hearts for a savior that's been in us since Adam and Eve. Last week we heard about the failed King Saul. And this week we hear about the great hero, King David. For the, for the Jews, King David was the Luke Skywalker for them. He was the Barack Obama. He was the great leader that brought them excitement and still, do, still does to this day. And if you're familiar with 1 and 2 Samuel, if you've read it before, you might, not know, you might know that this passage that we had, this long passage... Um, Uh, is actually one of the most important passages for Christians in the whole Old Testament. One of the most profound. And certainly for 1 and 2 Samuel, it's one of the central passages, probably the central passage. It's the dramatic and theological centre of the book. Uh, Chapters 5 and 6 show the rise of David to new heights. He he conquers Jerusalem and takes it over and gets the capital city back and brings the the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and brings legitimacy. He builds a temple for himself a, a, a palace for himself made of cedar and, and gets the stonemasons and it's beautiful. And there's a great sense in which he's risen to the heights of um, kingliness. So this is a great moment for him. But now when we get to the seventh chapter of 2 Samuel, David gets to a point where he goes, he says to himself, I get to live in this great, pal- in this great palace that's made of cedar, but I'm feeling uncomfortable because God is only living in a tent Right, and so he feels like he needs to do something to, um, for God he wants to serve God by building a temple but also there's more to it than this David wants to take things further in his leadership he'd seen King Saul and his dynasty fall and he doesn't want that to happen to himself so he, um, he, he wants to ensure that his dynasty will go on and in the same way that a romantic couple who are, you know, sort of dating and want to make sure things are locked in, they get engaged and they put on an engagement ring and then eventually they get married and they have the ceremony that locks in the relationship. Um, for, for a king in the ancient world, if you want to lock in your, kind of, your rule and your dynasty and God being on your side, what do you do? You build a temple. And so that's what David wants to do. Um, he wants to give God a permanent residence that will solidify his regime. Now, there's this interesting tension between having an ark and having a temple because the great thing about an ark for, uh, for people is that um, God can be mobile. You can carry it around and move, move about and um, God is free there. But with a temple, it's more permanent but then it's locked in place in one location. There's this interesting tension that's built there as we lead into this chapter. David doesn't want God to go away like he went away with Saul. So what's God's response? What's David's response? And there's also the prophet Nathan, let's not forget. So let's get into this this passage. And there's two words I want to frame it with. And the first word is humility, and the second um, word is grace. Let's think about this word humility. We've established that David's reign as king... Um, is going pretty well, and he's got this cedar palace, and everyone's thinking he's the great king. Two Samuel five twelve says that after his palace was built, then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. David then had a very real concern. He had. He'd said to the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 7, verse 2, This is wonderful that I I live in comfort and enjoy my reign from this beautiful house, but I'm starting to feel rather uncomfortable that God is living in a beaten up old tent, the Ark of the Covenant, which has been dragged around since the days of Moses. I want to build Yahweh a house, he says. David's desire is noble. (coughs) Build God a temple. In fact, the idea had precedent. Mo- Moses had said in the book of Deuteronomy that the time will come when the people will be in the land and God will select a site where he will meet with his people where there will be worship. The other nations built temples for their gods. Why shouldn't David? This is perfectly logical. And Nathan, the prophet, agrees with the proposal and says, This sounds like a good idea. Go and do it. What, a good, what good reason could be against this? It's in line with Scripture, it's in line with the success of the king of Israel. Why wouldn't God want this to happen? It brings unity to the nation. So in verse 3, the prophet Nathan says to the king, King David, go ahead. But then God says, no. And suddenly we see the great victorious King David humbled. Why would God say no to the building of the temple? First of all, God says a few things. He says... I've never asked for a house before. Why? Why would I start asking for one now? I don't want to live like a king when the people are suffering. I want to wait till their life is settled. But more importantly, God responds to Nathan and David by saying something along the lines of, you know, in every other religion, the people have to do something great for their gods. And then their gods will bless them. But with me, I'm different to every other god. You don't serve me and bless me. I serve you and bless you. This is not the religion of Yahweh, what David's suggesting. With Yahweh, divine blessing comes unconditionally. Eugene Peterson writes in his book, Leap Over a Wall. He writes this, David was about to cross over a line from being full of God to being full of himself. And in another commentary, Eugene Peterson says, he develops this idea he says... God's word to David through Nathan was essentially this. You want to build me a house? Forget it. I'm building you a house. The kingdom that I'm shaping here is not what you do for me, but what I do through you. I'm doing the building here, not you. I'm not going to let you confuse things by launching a building operation on your own. If I let you fill Jerusalem with the sights and sounds of your building project, carpenters, hammers, masons, chisels, teamsters shouting. Before long, everyone will be caught up in what you're doing and not attentive to what I'm doing. This is a kingdom that we are dealing with and I am the king. I've gotten along without a so-called house for a long time now. Where did you ever come up with the idea that I want or need a house? If there is any building to be done, I'm doing the building. I've been working with you since your shepherd days building a kingdom, a place where salvation and justice and peace can be realized that's why you're here to give visibility and representation to what i'm doing says god not to call attention to what you're doing we've just had one such failure in saul and we're not going to have another one in you there will come a time there will when it is appropriate to build something like what you have in mind your son in fact will do it but this is not the time First, we have to get the concept of my sovereignty established in the people's imagination and practice. Your kingship a witness to my kingship, not an obscuring of it. That is the house I'm building. Your kingship as witness and representation of my sovereignty. First things first. I love that big quote from Eugene Peterson. So the point is this. God alone will decide how people will worship. It's nobody else. God will set the spiritual agenda. Nobody else. Does Noah think of the idea to build the ark? No, it's God's crazy idea. Does Moses get the idea to lead the Israelites out of slavery? No, a burning God appears as the burning bush and tells Moses to do it. Did David wake up one morning while being a shepherd boy and just decide to be the king? No, as God said to David, "I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointing you ruler over my people Israel." If the temple is to be built, God will prescribe how, where, and who. Now, this presents a very clear practical application for you and me, I think. It's important for us not to think that serving God is a series of our personal achievements and projects. We mustn't come to God and say, I'm going to be the world's, Best worker for you, God. I'm so gifted, you need me. The church really can do with a great piano player, Peter Caroline's the guy. The church really could do with a you know a great project manager, and I'm gonna be the one to organize the church and get it in ship and shape, ship shape. The danger for us at Merry Creek is that we can say to ourselves, the inner north of Melbourne, it's such a pagan area deeply secular and postmodern modern and, and um, anti-religious and anti-god, but Mary Creek is full of all these amazing people, and we're going to take over the inner north. Because we're smart and we're interesting and they're going to like us. You know, it does irritate me a little bit when I see churches who have vision stat- statements that say something like, we're going to change the city. Uh... It's kind of presumptuous. I mean, I I, I like the ambition and I like the the boldness, but there's something about it that sounds a bit King David, doesn't it? Pastors do it all the time. They think they're going to do God a favor by um, doing some kind of amazing project. It's not that God doesn't want us to be ambitious or have a huge vision, rather, He wants us to remember that it is Him who sets the agenda, not us. him that makes things happen, often through the weak people, often th- usually through the most least expected person, not through the, the greatness of someone and their, you know, brilliance. If we want to win the inner north over Jesus, we've got to have a humble approach. We've got to learn from David's mistake. We've got to do it by serving God humbly and saying, well, God, what do you want to do? What's your agenda? Not what's our agenda. One of the things I realized from church plans is that you do all this planning, you think it's going to go a certain way, and then it goes a different way, and it always goes like that. And then you have to adjust, and you have to go, "Well, God's actually bringing different people to do what I expected. Let's let's go with that." God humbled David and reminded him that He would not share His glory with him. At every point in history, God takes the initiative. And let's be reminded that that's still true for us today. The second word I want us to think about is grace. Our first word was humility. Second word's grace. The chapter shows a remarkable display of God's grace. It's, it's like, this is the central, it's like the gospel on display here, um, you know, in a powerful way. Um, God offers a counter-promise to David. He responds to David by saying, you're not going to build me a house I'm going to build your house. And now when David talks about house, he's talking about a temple, isn't he? A building with bricks and stuff. But Dave, when, when God's talking about a house, he's not talking about that kind of house. God's talking about a dynasty. A dynasty whose name will be famous. Look at verse 9b. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And verse 10, this is going to be a dynasty which brings peace. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. 11b, I will, go, I will also give you rest from all your enemies. It's amazing. They, weren't they in the promised land already? God's promising more rest. Then 11c to 16 shows that David's own son will go on. And build the temple. David's offspring will build a house for my name, says the Lord. And verse 14, the Lord says, I will be his father and he will be my son. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? His son is not being used biologically or genetically. Rather, it's being used as a a category. Um, A a son does, you know, in the ancient world, a son did what his father did. In my case, I do do what my father does. Um, and uh, maybe my sons will too, but probably won't. But um, in contemporary times, the son doesn't do what the father does so much. But in ancient times, if your dad was a father, like Jesus, um, Joseph was a, fa- a carpenter, uh, you go on and, and be a carpenter as well. Uh, but when, when God's talking about my son, he's saying someone who's going to be like me. talks about Israel as, as his son. So what he's saying here is this, this future Your offspring, David, will be my son. He will be like me, and I will be his father. With God's people, the sons of God are people who do what God does. Exodus 4, Israel is my firstborn son. David's son will be God's son. This promise is unconditional. And God will keep the dynasty going. Saul's dynasty lasted one person. That's not a dynasty really, is it? Ends in Saul. Begins and ends in Saul. But with David, it will go on forever. What a house that God's going to build for David. Much better than a silly old temple. But, but this, this uh, kid, these series of kings that follow after David, they won't even be under the same pressure as Saul. Saul fell apart because of his own sin. But God says to David here, even if they sin, I will keep this promise. Uh, verse 14, when he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. But then he goes on to say, but then I'll bring him back to myself. This dynasty will not be based on the merit or the personal holiness of these kings, but on God's free gift of grace. Verse 15, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Before me, your throne will be established forever. So there's only really two options here for for God to keep his promise. Either one is that there is a series of kings that go after David that just keep going forever, or that there is a king that comes after David who rules forever. So you can understand why, um, you know, during the exiles, the exile... Um, the Israelites were looking around saying, where are these kings? What's, what's going on? We're keeping our list. We're keeping all the records of the descendants of David, but where is this king, kingly line that's going to rule forever? Uh, we're worried about this. God's promise to David. And then Jesus comes. In the line of David, very God of very God. And we turn to the first sentence in the first book of the New Testament which opens with the line, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And we see beginning with Abraham through to David, through to Jesus, how in Jesus, God not only fulfilled his covenant he made with Abraham to be a blessing to all the nations, but the promise that he made to David to create a dynasty that will go on forever. That all comes true in Jesus. A dynasty that never ends. So you can see how 2 Samuel 7 is really central to the Christian faith. The baby born in the manger is the Davidic king. He overcame death. He overcame sin. He brought the peace that God promised. He's not just the son of David. He's the son of God. So as the composer Handel writes in the the Hallelujah Chorus, He shall reign forever and ever. Go and listen to that when you go home from church. And Psalm 96 says that, um, you know, it's this great image of the the universe rejoicing um, in the presence of the Lord. And and it says, um, The heavens will rejoice, the earth will be glad, the fields jubilant, and all the trees will sing for joy. And if the trees sing for joy, think about how much more we will sing for joy and dance. This points us to our practical response to God's gracious promise to build a house for David first of all we think about um, hope for the world the text says that he is the eternal king if Jesus was just a a saviour then a Christian faith would be a personal thing just, just you and God but he is a king this is not just about getting your sins forgiven and going to heaven when you die this is about the whole of the world. The world is going to be utterly restored. Kings bring peace and justice to the whole world. Also, there's a natural application to serve, then, in response to what God promises David. Because just as the king in the son of David, the son of God, comes to serve, so should we serve and follow and imitate our king. If Jesus is the king, we should also be obedient because you, you submit to the King, You can't just pick and choose the bits you want to submit to. You have to submit to him with everything you have. You have to trust the King. Just as God reminded David that he had everything under control and would cause history to happen in his own good timing, so too we are to trust in Jesus the King, Jesus the Messiah, that his plans are good and true. We're to stop worrying about our future. Worry reveals that we don't really trust in the king who has control over the universe. Hand everything over to Jesus. We're to have expectation. If he's the king, as opposed to some flawed king like Saul or even like David, you can expect that he's going to do some, some great things in your life. And doesn't mean that you should expect worldly riches. Rather, we should expect kingdom of God riches. We should expect the blessing that the King Jesus brings. And so finally, we should expect joy. You might experience great joy watching Star Wars Episode 7, but you should experience a lot more joy meditating on, basking in the glory of King Jesus. Know that the joy that you experience of a a saviour hero is actually fulfilled in the true King Jesus, the real Saviour, Davidic King. As King David said in his prayer of response to the Lord, how great you are, Sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you humbled King David and that you showed grace to him, and that in him that you made a great promise um, to establish a dynasty that will go on for eternity. We pray that we can know you, Lord Jesus, as our King, a great, um, true Davidic King, the Son of God. Pray that we can live in response to you, obediently, servant-heartedly, expecting, with expectance and with joy. We pray as we continue to look at the kings in this series, that we'll we'll be continually open, um, have our hearts open to you and what you reveal in those kings that led up to you. Amen.